Good morning, everyone. Happy Ash Wednesday to all of you. We have had, oh, and happy Valentine's Day. Priorities, Barbara. Okay, so today is Ash Wednesday. We've already had two services. Actually, there's one finishing up right now, and so I, I peeked in, and we've got some members who are in there, so they were kind of double dipping today at 10 o'clock and at 10.30, so they may sneak in here in a minute. Um, we have three more services today, immediately following this class, not quite immediately, at noon. Then we've got five o'clock, and five o'clock is really the one for children. Um, we're gonna do a very special kind of moment in the service where the children come up and we do distribution of ashes and all that sort of stuff. And so if you've got children, grandchildren, or just friends with kids, um, the five o'clock service has a special experience for them. And then of course, seven o'clock tonight. Seven o'clock is sort of like the full-on mass kind of thing beyond just the imposition. So with the choir. So if you want kind of that big old experience, that's at seven o'clock. So noon, five o'clock, seven o'clock, in case you have yet to get your ashes. Um, I always like to tell everyone that on this Wednesday, you've got to get your ash to church. So. I know, I know, it's bad. So, quick note on Ash Wednesday. So, Ash Wednesday, those ashes represent our humanity, right? The way that we will, you know, none of us make it out of here alive, that that's really what ashes represent. But it's also about our call to repentance and a return, right? An actual turning and a returning toward God. And that's very appropriate, both as we begin Lent, right, the season of Lent and the season of repentance, but also as we look at chapter 15 of Luke, because chapter 15 is really all about a return. Um, this is a powerful chapter. It's good, good stuff. And so I'm very excited to share this with you all today. First off, before we say our prayer, I want to invite you as part of a Lenten discipline in this group because this is a didactic experience right it is a taught class and what i wish we had was the experience of small groups within this class it's just hard to do so with so many people so here's my lenten challenge for you that each wednesday during lent when you come to this class either before or after the teaching go introduce yourself to someone you don't know that's it don't leave the room. We, we are honestly, none of us that busy, right? We are all important, but we can really take five minutes to look around the room. And if there's someone you don't know, then go introduce yourself. And especially if there's someone, I mean, how many of us in this room know there's someone in this room and we're supposed to know them, right? <laughs> we are supposed to know their name. And that is just, it's infuriating because once you know someone for, you know, if you meet someone once or twice, you don't remember their name, that's no problem. But then once you see them a few more times, it kind of gets awkward. But then there's definitely a line you cross where like, you can't ask their name again, right? Because you're supposed to know their name. We're all going to let that go in this room, right? If you don't know somebody's name, why don't you do this? Introduce yourself to someone else first. And that way you kind of take that pressure off and then you can remember their name. So don't leave before you meet a new friend so that you know someone's name in this room you did not know before. There's my Lenten challenge for you. Let's open with a prayer and get started. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks 
for the season of Lent and the opportunity for each one of us in our own way to turn or to return toward you. God, we give you thanks for the grace and love which abundantly falls on us no matter what we have done and that we can turn to you every day and in doing so, transform our lives into the person that you would created us to be. We ask you to hold close all those in our community, either present or not, who need your healing touch the most. Keep our friends and family who need support in your presence and give us the strength and the courage and the grace to go forward into all the challenges of our lives that we may reflect your light in the darkest places. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week we talked about chapter 14 and the cost of discipleship. And the summary is, discipleship is expensive, right? It costs us a lot. When we choose to follow Jesus, we make that the priority of our lives. It does not mean that we don't have many other priorities and God willing, all of those things go together. But when push comes to shove, we are challenged to make our faithfulness as disciples of Jesus the number one priority in our life. We don't like this stuff. It is nearly impossible for any of us to do this very well, but it's still the challenge that we receive every day. And I love Bible studies like this because we get that regular nudge back toward God, right? The world can pull us away and we get this nudge back closer to God, right? To turn and to return to God every day. And so this is our reminder again that discipleship is not cheap. Today, we hear one of the best, if not maybe the best story in the Bible, right? So you might remember that I said at the beginning of this study that Luke is the master storyteller, right? The best, the best storyteller in the Bible. And today he puts his brilliance on display for all of us because the story of the prodigal son, which is in chapter 15, which all of you knew because you read before you came, is masterful. And we're gonna talk about the way that it's nuanced and how rich the story really can be for all of us. So chapter 15 starts with a couple probably familiar parables, little parable nuggets. And those parable nuggets are about the lost sheep and the lost corn. And then part two, which is the bulk of this chapter, is about the parable son. So we're gonna start by giving some context to this scene, right? This is all at least told as if it was one whole scene, this whole chapter. And it begins, the very beginning of chapter 15, by saying, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. That's good. So put yourself in this situation. Jesus has become more and more popular, right? We've said that with each chapter. He's gathering more and more people together but the people who are in power, who have authority among the religious group, definitely think that they are important, right? 
And Jesus is not treating them like they are more important than the tax collectors and the sinners, right? So let's put, who are the tax collectors and the sinners, right? Tax collectors are those Jewish people within this context who have basically sold out to the Romans, right? These are people from, you know, they're from the block, right? They grew up at synagogue with everyone else, and yet they have seized the opportunity to make extra money by demanding that all of their brothers and sisters pay taxes to the Romans. This is not okay. And the Jewish people do not like these tax collectors because they are sellouts, right? Then you've got the sinners. The sinners would be all the people who don't follow the rules, right? The Jewish tradition has these beautiful legal rules, right? Parameters around everything. And these are the people who just don't live within those boxes. Tax collectors and sinners are the ones that are on the outside. The Pharisees and the scribes are the ones who are on the inside. They're the ones that follow the rules. They do what they're supposed to do. And Jesus, if he was a real prophet of God, should treat them better. And we get this. We know how this feels, right? Because we are not only human, but we are 21st century American humans. And so we, better than pretty much anybody in history of humanity, are self-centered, right? We are so very important, right? And each one of us knows, I mean, we know just how important we are, right? And most of the time, we want people to make sure that they recognize that we are very important. And when people don't, even though there might be some topic of the day, what is most often happening is that someone has not treated us as important as we know we are, right? Now, we may not want to admit this, and there are this nervous laughing, <laughs> but we get this, right? I mean, it can be as simple as, you know, you check into a hotel and someone doesn't immediately help you do whatever it is that you need done, and why not? The customer is always right, right? I am here paying you to do something for me, right? We are consumers and we're great at it. And so this passage should really challenge us because the Pharisees and the scribes, in essence, are not being treated as the important people they think they are. And instead, Jesus is being terribly egalitarian and equal. And that's not really that fair. Because if he is godly, then the Pharisees and the scribes are more godly than the tax collectors and the sinners. And so if anything, Jesus should be prioritizing time with them. And yet he's throwing this, these parties, right? He's having dinner and he's walking and talking and he's having a big time with everyone as if they were all equal. God's economy is not the economy of the world. This should be hard on us if we allow ourselves to kind of go into a vulnerable place, right? Bible studies should not necessarily be just intellectual, right? So this chapter invites us to get a little vulnerable, right? To open ourselves up to perhaps some of those weak spots, those soft spots that we try to ignore, but are still there. 
And if we can open ourselves up a little bit in the next hour, I think we're going to find that these stories really speak pretty profoundly to us in this room, perhaps more so than most people in the world. So Jesus tells two little parable nuggets in order to respond to the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. The first is, say someone had a hundred sheep and one sheep goes missing. Wouldn't that person reasonably go find that one lost sheep? That kind of makes sense to us because how many of us have been shepherds? Anyone? <laughs> right? Right. Excuse me. B, did you just raise your hand? I am fat. We're going to talk about being a shepherd sometime. Oh, like a shepherd here? Ah, okay. I mean like a shepherd with sheep. Okay. I was just going to say, we're going to have lunch sometime. Because you're going to tell me all about that. Okay. <clears throat> I have never, you know, had sheep. And so I don't really understand what being a, an actual, I don't want to say an actual shepherd. Those of you who are a part of the Good Shepherd ministry here, you're shepherds, you are. But like actual sheep shepherds, right? But I have to think that I had a friend in college who, I kid you not, graduated, then went to New Zealand to work on a sheep farm for six months. That was like her gap year. And however many years later, it's been what, 16 years or so, she got married and has had children and literally is a sheep farmer in New Zealand. And is that, I don't, whatever, bless her heart. I don't think she listens to this, so it's okay. Um, I imagine, however, that within context of being a, an actual, honest to goodness shepherd, if you've got a hundred sheep, one goes missing, you can't just leave 99 sheep somewhere, right? That's, that is not an easy thing to do. Yet, perhaps if push comes to shove, yeah, it would be really nice to go get that 100th sheep back. Okay, so the people listening to Jesus may have said, they're no good shepherd is going to leave 99 sheep to go get the one, right? So then Jesus tells a second little parable. What if you had 10 silver coins and one went missing? Wouldn't you turn over everything in your house to find that one silver coin? And to put into context, silver coins at this time would have been highly valuable. I mean, 10 silver coins could have been for any real, real life person, their entire life savings every bit of wealth they have in the world, right? That would be a huge amount of money. And so to lose one of 10, surely you're gonna put those nine in your pocket and search everywhere for that 10th coin, right? That makes more sense. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, you don't just lose one little piece of a whole and be okay with it. You, as the person responsible for the whole, do everything in your power to go make that whole complete again, right? If that's a hundred sheep, you get your hundredth sheep. 
that's 10 silver coins, you've got to get that 10th coin because it's never going to be as good when a piece is missing. This is very important for us to understand because there is a Jewish understanding that Jesus is living in that God's created world has somehow been separated between heaven and earth, right? We sort of understand this, but I want to make this explicit. The Jewish context in which Jesus is living and where the people listening to him would have gone in their mind is that there is a very clear understanding that God created heaven and earth and that at one point that whole was together and that they have somehow split. And Jesus, like the prophets before him, are trying to put back together what has been separated, right? The whole story of Genesis is basically a way of articulating what people knew was true. We are somehow separated from the wholeness of God. Now, how that separation happened, or how we can even understand what is separating us, that's a mystery, right? But the truth that we are separated is, is true. I mean, that is a truth. And so Jesus, like the other prophets, is trying to show how we can come back together. That in God's economy, everybody's got to be back together for things to be whole again. That is a critical idea because it gets at what is ultimately a ridiculous story of the prodigal son. So before we get to the prodigal son, any questions or thoughts about these two little, little parables, mini parables, that set up the profoundness of the prodigal story? Any questions? All right. Prodigal son. I want us to try and not assume that we know this story and what it means, right? This is perhaps the hardest chapter in Luke because we know the story so well and we have seen it represented so many times that we can make an assumption about its meaning. And so I want us to kind of grab what you have in your mind regarding the prodigal son and try and kind of partition it to the side so that we can really look at the story as it is and perhaps get something better out of it. The obvious theme of the prodigal son is God's lavish grace and love. That is true. It is the great theme of the story, but that's not as deep as we can go with this story. And so hold that high level idea that God's love is limitless. But let's actually parse out what happens in this story. And we're gonna do so more or less in two parts. The first part has to do with the young son. And the second part's going to have to do with the old son. So the young son story is one that we can absorb pretty well, right? We all know the story, right? Their father has two sons. 
the younger son wants his inheritance. And so he asks his father to sell, partition his wealth, his property, so that he can receive his inheritance early, cash out, and make good. What I want us to understand is that this is not sort of country kid goes to the big city to make a fortune, right? We might hear this as, we all in, in one way or the other want our kids to go, go without needing us, right? I mean, as a parent, I, I want my children, I, mean, I want to be in a relationship with my children their whole lives or my whole life, but I also want at some point for them to like fly, right? That's the point, right? I don't want them to need me around. I want them to want me around, but I want them to not need that. The cultural context of the Middle East here is different, right? The economy and families are different. Your only real wealth and opportunity is your family. There is no kind of other opportunity for you to be a professional or go to school and get a graduate degree or something like that, right? Your wealth is built within your family unit and it's passed on from generation to generation. The father in this story would have inherited from his father and would anticipate passing on their whole shared communal wealth to his children, but not until he's dead. And so in this moment when the younger son comes and says, can I have my inheritance? In essence, what this kid is saying is, I wish you were dead. First, anyone who hear, heard this story would have immediately expected the father to have sent this child packing, right? Bye. Not responded with, okay, we'll divide the family's wealth. That makes no sense. All the people listening to this story would have just been dumbfounded that the father would have even, even heard this child's request and kept him there, like, and not sent him out. The father takes and divides his wealth, but then to make it money, you gotta sell it, right? There is no loan from the bank. This is not collateral to be repaid. They would have literally taken land, divided it in half, and sold that half to create cash to give to this child to go into the city. So put yourself in the position of this family, not just the father, the entire system, right? You've seen, how many different ways have we seen the, the way that this, Downton Abbey, right? I love Downton Abbey. I miss Downton Abbey, but I know, right? I miss it. But you, we get, we understand the sense that a family's wealth is shared, right? The success of a family has lots of ripples. Right? How many couple hundred people were impacted by that one family's decisions, right? Because you had people raising crops, you had people raising animals, you had people selling things and blacksmiths and bakers and you name it. There's an entire system here that would have fallen underneath this father's single umbrella. By selling off half the property, they're not just undermining their family unit, they're undermining the entire system that they support, and yet he does it anyway. And this young son goes off, 
and wastes all this money on dissolute living. That's not good, right? We learn later what dissolute might actually mean. The son has shamed his father by saying he wishes he were dead. The father has acted in a completely irrational way by dividing his family property. Again, shame on the family. The son has gone off and lost all this money on dissolute living as if the shame could not get any worse. And then the salt in the wound is after he lost all the money, what was he doing? Feeding pigs. Y'all, they're Jews, all right? This is like the worst thing possible. How could this get any worse? He is feeding, touching, caring for pigs. And then thinks about eating with the pigs? Are you kidding me? I mean, you might as well just burn everything to the ground, right? That is the way the story has been set up. There is nothing left for Jesus to say that could make this worse. Except the son decides to come home. And the son decides to come home, and then what does the father do? We wouldn't even notice this as, a, as an, unrash, an irrational thing. But the father runs to put his arm around him. Men do not run. That is, that is silly. That is not respectable. No man, head of a family like this, would ever stoop so low as to run for anything. And this kid that has done everything possible to shame this family, the father runs to him to put his arms around him. And so we get to this point where the repentance, the returning toward the father has in a very real way shown to everyone around that love knows no limits. Grace knows no limits. And it's immediately linked to God, right? Now, before we get to part two, I want to tell the story on a macro level. Most of us, if not all of us, when we hear this story, relate to someone in the story. We think about the way we might behave in this story. Could we be the younger brother or the older brother? Could we be the father? Could we perhaps be a bystander, right? Where's the mother? I'll tell you where she is. She's trying to kill her husband is what she's trying to do. But you know, who, is, who are these people in the story and who are we in this story? Except it is very likely that the people listening to Jesus were not thinking about them as individuals, but they could have been hearing this story on a much higher corporate level. Because in the history of the Jewish people, they are in a way still in exile from being the people God promised that they would be. So we're gonna take a little minute and put that into context. The Israelites are Semitic people. The Semite people come from Mesopotamia and Abraham, right? So we know the quick history here. 
Abraham, who lived in Mesopotamia, Ur, was, went with Sarah to what became Canaan. And in that land of Canaan, Abraham had a couple sons, Isaac had a son, a couple sons, and then Joshua, I'm sorry, Jacob, had 12 sons. And through famine and, you know, lots of drama and multicolored coats and things like that, um, all of the Israelites got to Egypt. 400 years after that happened, the Israelites are in captivity, Moses comes on the scene, they are rescued, they receive the law, and then they go into the promised land under Joshua. They receive this promised land from God because they are the chosen people. And that's good for quite some time until the exile. That first temple that Solomon built is destroyed. The Assyrians come and take all the Jews from the northern kingdom, and then the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians and come down and take all the Jews from the southern kingdom. So in one, in a couple generations, all the Jewish people that mattered to the economy of the culture, right, the teachers and the philosophers and the um, engineers and you name it, they were taken away out of the promised land. Now ultimately, many of them came back. They built a new temple, but they were never autonomous again. They went from one overlord to another. And in this moment, as Jesus is telling this story, even though the Jews kind of think that they're in charge, the Romans are in charge. And they know it. And they live with this hopefulness that at some point, they will be back in the promised land on their own, living independently because God chose them hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Does that make sense? Jews listening to the story of the prodigal may have thought about it individually, but they were probably listening to the story corporately, right? As a nation, they were somehow separated from God and that their hope is a return to God at some point. Now, as if the story wasn't good up to this point, that's just the first half. Luke takes this story and twists it brilliantly by bringing the older brother on the scene. Part two. The older brother who has done basically everything the dad has asked has witnessed his younger brother sacrificing the security of the family, shaming their family beyond belief. And then his father runs to his younger son and brings him home and throws a party. Can you believe how angry this older son would have been. And so he comes in to tell his father exactly what he thinks. The, younger, the older brother comes in, and this is where Luke's language is just so, so good. Servant goes to the older brother and says, your brother has come home. But when he goes to his father, he says, this son of yours has returned home. 
How often do you do, I don't know if you ever found this, you know, as parents, you know, when I refer to my children, you know, when everything's going well, you know, it's, it's, it's my son or daughter, and when everything's going badly, it's like, go tell your daughter, right, to do something, right? This is kind of the way that we do it too. And so the older brother goes, your son has done this, right? As if their relationship as brothers is over. And now his father is the one that is continuing the shame that this younger son has put on the family. Then the father says, I'm sorry, then the older brother says, I've been slaving to you, slaving for you to his father. I've been slaving for you all these years, doing everything that you have wanted, while this other kid, your son, goes and wastes everything. And in this moment, what Luke is doing is showing that the older brother has just as much contempt and is just as disrespectful, fundamentally, as the younger brother was. So to speak up against your father this way, to condemn your father's actions in public, remember where they are, they're not having this conversation behind closed doors. The father has thrown a party. This room is full. Can you imagine walking into, say, a wedding reception and a child reaming out the parent of the bride or the groom? That is what's happening here. It is very public. And what Luke is now holding up is you've got the younger son who's done, by the world standards, everything wrong and yet has repented. And the older son who, by the world standards, has done everything right, but their self-righteousness has kept them from seeing that there's still something repentable. I don't know if that's a word. There's still something for which he could repent on the inside, and yet his pride has blinded him to the person he's become. But the father knows who he is on the inside. And the father says, well, before we get there, the context of this argument is important. Remember how we've divided the property, divided the wealth. It is very conceivable that the older brother is now protecting what is his, right? This younger brother doesn't get to come home and then get half of the half, right? Oh, no, no, no. He's out. And even though the father's still alive, this unprecedented situation where the inheritance has kind of already been divided before the father's dead, the older brother knows everything here, including that fatted calf you just slaughtered for your son is mine, right? This does not belong to you anymore. At best, the older son and the father are partners. But the son, this older son is really acting out of, none of this is yours to give to that boy, right? It is mine. The father then replies, with what I think is just, it's, it's a beautiful moment where, I didn't even write it down. Oh, here it is. It says, son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, right? The father reminds him of his relationship. This brother of yours was dead and has come to life. 
He was lost and he has been found. This idea of lost and found gets reiterated in this much larger context, right? So do you see we've reduced ourselves from one in a hundred, one in 10, now one in two. We need these parts to be whole. The father is saying to the older son, no matter what happened, we cannot be whole without your brother. And it's so hard for us to look at this story because if we're honest, with maybe one or two exceptions, every one of us in this room is the older son. I mean, mostly, those of us in this room have not had the rock bottom experience that this younger son has had, where you severed every tie in your family, where you squandered everything you were ever given, and when you hit rock bottom, turned back toward the people who loved you. Most of us have done the right stuff, mostly, not perfect, but we have more or less done what we're supposed to do, right? We've gone out and we've worked hard and we have said the right things at the right times and shown up at the right events and we've done all the right stuff and followed the rules and you're sitting in a church pew on a Wednesday morning, right? It's us. And when we read this kind of story, although we may really want to be the prodigal, we probably are most like the older son. And if we put into that context, who in our lives has acted like the younger son, then the story gets hard. We love the moment when God's grace embraces the younger son, right? Think about Rembrandt. What moment did he paint? He painted the moment of the embrace. But what's hardest for us is when the father says, your, your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. We have to celebrate because we have all in some way been in a situation where we have chosen not to celebrate because we know we are right. Dang. That's heavy. And it's hard. And so let's talk about the annoyance of God's grace. <laughs> Having no limit to grace can be super frustrating to those of us who work really hard because we think now we may we may know this is not true but we we act and therefore we have created in our minds this idea that we have somehow earned it now if i push you on that i think all of us would respond the way we're supposed to because that's what we do we respond the way we're supposed to and say no no we've not earned grace Right? God gives it to us freely. But, come on. I mean, we've at least earned more of it, right, than those people out there. 
that's, that's what we're dealing with here, right? Is this idea of what, what is grace? We like to put a limit around it. We like to put a limit around it because then we can defend the way that we act, right? We make hard choices, we make sacrifices, and we do so because we want to do the right thing. And when someone else doesn't do the right thing, they shouldn't get the same as us, right? But this story for Jesus becomes so powerful because he says there is nothing that we can do to earn that grace. And there's nothing we can do to lose it. We have kind of inherited what I might say is God's love. That isn't really, that's not an intellectual statement. That's, a, that's an emotional statement. We have received that love mostly because we've been formed in it, right? I mean, how many people here were not taken to church as a child? I saw one hand. And that's totally normal, right? Most of us have inherited this kind of love that we know is true. But even though we've been gifted with that sensibility of God's love by doing nothing to earn it, we still somehow claim it as a limit for other people. We have a task ahead of us to go find these people like the prodigal. What is it that we could be as a church to actually bear witness to this limitless grace in such a way that people in our lives, maybe our families, certainly our friends, certainly our neighbors, would see that we did something that was so gross, so unsensical, so irrational because of God's love that they would have to ask us why. Have you ever done something that is so radically graceful that people don't even know why you did it? That's the kind of challenge that we have as a church. What is it that we could do? Just imagine for a minute. What is it that we could do that would be so, so profoundly unpredictable that people would have to stop us and say, why? Because when that happens, we have an incredible opportunity to tell them why. And then the story of God's grace begins to break through that really dense, thick shell that the world has created around our identities. We have been taught how to be in this world. And we're trying to relearn what it is that God gave us at the very beginning which is this simple, limitless understanding of grace. And every time we turn toward God, we might get a little closer to understanding what this grace really means in this world. And we do so with 
confidence and courage because it doesn't make any sense and it makes us vulnerable and it seemingly rewards bad and that's hard but Jesus does not well Luke does not finish this story did you notice we're kind of left wondering does the father and the older brother, do they reconcile? Do the brothers reconcile? Does that younger brother who had done all these bad things, does his return and his repentance stick, right? I mean, how many of us are thinking, yeah, that's nice that day. We've all seen people who have gone way off the rails for a day seem to get back on, but then when life gets a little hard, do they fall off the wagon again, so to speak? Luke doesn't tell us any of it. And it could be for two reasons. Yep. We don't hear if the son goes in. We don't hear the brothers ever talk. Luke intentionally leaves this completely open. One reason could be that a story is always more powerful when the storyteller lets you finish, right? It's like a really good, scary movie. You know, a good, scary movie never shows you the scary thing, right? It always lets your imagination run wild. A good storyteller doesn't necessarily put every little detail in the story so that you can engage it more deeply. But I think there's a bigger reason why Luke leaves this open-ended. Luke leaves this open-ended because it's not about some family at some point in history. It always is about us. This is us. We are this story. And we still have the time to write the end. Our lives and what we do when we leave this chapel, what we do next week, what we do next year, that is actually how we finish this story. It didn't exist in time for us to simply learn some moral lesson. Jesus tells the story to these people in this moment and to us right now so that we can write the end. And how we write it is up to us. I never have time for discussion. So excited. I'm going to stop and open it up to thoughts, questions. What don't you like? So if we wonder about, I'm not entirely sure what you're wondering about with the father and the older son in the relationship. No, I, I know not you. I was thinking Madeline. But if we look at I think most often when we tell the story and we talk about God's grace, which is of course the macro message, right? That grace, the definition of grace often rests with the younger son. And what I think we miss is that the profound grace is also given to the older as well. It's, it is almost too simple to say that God's grace makes sense 
with the younger son who repents and returns. It is a much more complex, complicated matter when that grace is given to the older son who may by the world standards have not done anything that is as bad as the younger son. And yet in this moment reveals the ugliness inside his heart. And we might say, well, I mean, you know, you can kind of be mean for 10 minutes or you can go destroy your family's future with dissolute living, right? Not the same. But I do think that that's what Jesus is saying, is that who's listening to this, right? Remember how the whole thing started. You had the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes, right? This whole thing began because the Pharisees and the scribes said, why would Jesus spend his time with people who are like that? Yo, that is the story he just told, right? The tax collectors and the sinners, they're the younger brother. And the Pharisees and the scribes are the older. Their self-righteousness and their pride and their true ugliness, they can't even see it. But Jesus does. And here's what I think is perhaps something we, can, we forget, is that God's grace is for everyone. And Jesus' mission was for everyone. Oftentimes, he's put up against Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and leaders and people like that. But Jesus never forgets about them too. And in this story, he's saying, yes, for sure, it's tax collectors and sinners. Those who go off and do the obvious bad thing, I want them to repent. But all of these others who follow all the rules and who are very proud of that are also called to repent and to turn toward God as well. We all turn in our own way, and sure, it might be a sliding scale, but I think that's even a dangerous thing to say. Because in essence, anything that separates us from God, any division between that heaven and earth is a division, period. If it's really small or it's gigantic, it is divided. And it's God's desire that it be made whole. And so no matter how much seems to be keeping you from God, if you're not together, you're not together. And I think in, for some people, I, I don't know how many of you have experience with, I'm certain some of you in here are in recovery, right? I don't know how many of you have experience with those in recovery, but I have found that people who are in recovery really get this gospel stuff. They get it, right? People who have had an experience where they find that they are no longer in control, that they have undermined relationships, that they have gone way off the rails, and they turn. All of this makes great sense. I mean, I often say an AA meeting is like the best church, right? Because if you don't get that you need, period, you cannot understand Jesus. The entire point of the gospel is that we cannot do this on our own. But for those of us who have always felt empowered to do it ourselves, whatever it is, it is really difficult. We are so dense 
to the message of grace because we've not really figured out that we need it. And until that really bad thing happens that breaks through that shell, and it could be any number of things, it doesn't have to be addiction, but that's one example of where that shell breaks open. Then, all of a sudden, Jesus makes sense. That's the challenge of doing Christianity in America, honestly is because how many people truly feel so vulnerable that they need Jesus? It rarely happens. That's a great point. I think, and I haven't mentioned debt yet, but debt is a great concept because there are multiple moments in all the Gospels where Jesus sets up a paradigm where a person would never, in a lifetime, be able to repay a debt that they owe, and God wipes it clean, right? You've got the, you've got the good master who gives the talents, and you've got, I mean, you've got multiple examples of people who could never acquire and repay a debt and are forgiven. And that's really what's happening here is that that's a way of understanding this. For those of us who feel like we are in control, we might feel like we can repay the cosmic spiritual debt that we owe. Those who, have, who realize they can't, then the, the act of grace and forgiveness makes sense. But most of us have never been vulnerable enough to someone else where we really owe them more than we could ever repay. And if we have never been in that position, never been that vulnerable, then the idea that God's grace forgives or cancels anything is difficult to even conceive. Really awesome. So, question is about obedience, right? Because it's always hand in hand, right? Um, and you turn to James, which I love because that's the way Roman Catholics have always defended the idea of works righteousness. Good job, Lily. Um, so there is this sense that it, it's held hand in hand, right? If we think about church history and the theological developments that have happened over time, in essence, you had a thousand years, really 1,500 years, of people thinking that you do have to work hard in order to basically continue to receive the grace. Like there's always this balance that you're trying to strike where you, you may not earn it, but you kind of earn it, right? I mean, it's... It's difficult. Martin Luther really wanted to turn that around and say, no, we are, we are saved by faith alone. But what he said was, being saved, cannot, you cannot help but do good when you are truly saved. And so the way that I relate those two is it isn't until you have that profound experience of true grace, not just from God, it is from you too. You know, Lent, since we're starting it today, is a season of repentance. And that can sound super churchy, but what that really is is a chance for us to take stock of what it is that is keeping us from God. When we do that, and if we become, if we really accept the things in our lives that keep us from God, and have the experience of profound grace, we will not 
be able to be disobedient. It, it goes hand in hand that the truth of that salvation experience is obedience. We can't help it. And not to say that if you're ever disobedient to God that somehow you're, like, the salvation is untrue. But it's, it's a both and always. And it's, you don't have one before the other. And you can't have one without the other. And that's, we like to try and create the rule. Like, obviously, if someone is acting badly, well, then their salvation is not real. Or if we act really, really good, then whatever our faith doesn't really matter because we're doing good, right? And it can't be one without the other. It's not really, I think, the answer you want. Um, but that's a, it's a great question because that's, in essence, that could potentially be the root of Christian theology, theological differences in every denomination is that issue, which means I can't actually answer it. That's kind of the thing. Um, but when you, when you reduce down, what's the difference between, say, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, a Roman Catholic, a Greek Orthodox, or whatever? Almost always you can reduce it down to where they put themselves in that scale. And as Episcopalians, we theologically, now functionally we may not do this, but theologically we hold those two, you can't have one without the other, and one does not come before the other. Freely you have received, so freely give. We need that on our envelopes in church, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. All right, thank you all. Make sure you check out Ash Wednesday services, noon, 5, and 7, and we'll see you here next week. Thank you.